And it's funny because like in the first page of that chapter, you're like, you probably flipped here first. <laughs> exactly, because we know that that's what people are going to do. Gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Raj Nation Innovations Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka the Raj Nation. I am your show's host, the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, as well as a hip hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. And I am joined by my co host, Victoria Cohen. Victoria is the voice behind the blog almondsandasana.com. She is a fellow yogi and a community activist focused on helping you make lifestyle choices that positively impact you and the people you serve. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. Is real talk with real people doing real big things to uncover the real side of success. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation if you are not a member already. Join our tribe by going to discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of the show, getting a notification in your inbox every single Monday when we launch a new episode. You'll also get my stories, advice, and tips throughout the month on how you as a startup can make your pitch a performance. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation on today's episode of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to Discover Your Inner Awesome. Today on the show, we have Rajat Bhargava. Rajat is a serial entrepreneur. He's an investor. He's had a couple companies go public. He has a whole laundry list of work history and cool insight to share. So I'm very excited that we have him on the show today. Raj, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here too. Our topic today is how do you go slow to grow fast, which I know is something that every founder, every startup founder is thinking, right? How do you scale this thing, but how do you make sure you're almost mindful about it in the process? So why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? Yeah, this is, you know, it's interesting because I think everybody wants to go fast because they want to grow so quickly. They want to be that unicorn. They want to be that famous company that's super successful. But the challenge is that most of the companies that do that end up failing because there's so many issues, fundamental issues that they have in their business model, in their approach, in their team or their financing. Um, there's, it's just, it's wrought with, uh, with problems. So what we have been talking a lot about is take your time, build the right foundation for your business before you really scale it. It's very, very difficult to build a big company, a successful company that has a shaky foundation. And you see it all over the place. And it's something that we've been through. Um, I've been through personally where the foundation wasn't strong enough and the company couldn't withstand it. So that's that's a core part of why we're advocating this is build a great foundation and you'll have a much better chance to build a great company. You, you know, you talk about this idea of the foundation, right? And you've, I think had eight different companies under your name at this point. So you've had a good amount of experience with 
different types of foundations building and maybe things going well, things not going so well. I mean, to the point where, you know, now you're the co-author of this book, The Startup Playbook. So let's dial it back. And I want to know about your foundation personally. So where did you grow up and what was your home life like? And how do you think that shaped you as you grew up? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up not far from where you both are in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I think the foundation really was set for me by family and friends in sort of being in a Midwest community, um, which I think both of you know, because you're in the Midwest and, um, it's just great values and, um, hard work kind of, uh, just growing up maybe the right with the right foundation. So, and part of that was, uh, being in high school, where I went to a very interesting high school that was um, half-day math and science, half-day I went to the regular normal um, public school. And so I think that really helped with my foundation of how to really work hard, focus on fundamentals, and then you know build up from there. Were you always entrepreneurial? Like as a kid, looking back, did you do certain things or did that kind of develop later? Uh, I think I was um, entrepreneurial early on. But it, it was maybe just in different things um, that weren't necessarily related to business. But I did things like junior achievement, which was very interesting at the time when you're, you know, whatever, 13, 14 years old. And I, uh, I decided to um, take off from high school uh, before my senior year and, and go to college. So I kind of felt like I figured out a different way to kind of hack the system, if you will, um, and I didn't see value in sticking around high school for, for that fourth year. And so, you know, I, I felt like that was kind of entrepreneurial. And then ultimately, I think it sort of kicked in when I had been doing internships with Intel uh, during the summers while I was in college. And I figured out there that I could do so much more than what maybe people would let me do in a large company. And it totally makes sense because why would a large company trust a young kid who, you know, doesn't have any work experience. Um, but I had a belief that I could do a lot more and, and I quickly figured out, well, if you want to do a lot more, the only way to do that is to start your own thing. So that's kind of what I did. That's so cool. So it's actually really funny that you say that about high school and I've never really thought of it like that. I did a very, very similar thing. I, I left halfway through my senior year, but, uh, but I graduated early and I, in, I did a study, a college study abroad program the last semester of high school where I went to Spain, but it was with, you know, all kids that were like juniors in college. And it was a very similar thing. Like I had to, I had to take like all these extra online classes and the first semester of senior year to like technically have enough credits, but then to get into the, um, to the, to, to the study abroad program, I had to, you know, take the California equivalent where I lived at the time of the GED, but then technically I still had to get my diploma to like graduate and go to college. <laughs> and then I weirdly did a very similar thing when I got to college, I ended up having like all these extra credits that I came in with. I, t I figured out how to like take some extra summer school classes and then like be done by my junior year, do my master's, but keep some undergrad classes in my senior year to like keep my scholarship. So I, I, I totally identify with that. I really, that's cool. See, I love that. I love that you took a different approach mm -hmm. and it's sort of, you know, we put, especially, I guess I'll just talk about 
um, high school, you, you put kids into a box and you say, well, you've got to take these certain things. You've got to do it this certain way. And you kind of don't have a choice. And yeah, you have some electives, but in general, it's you're on a particular path. And I guess it just, for me, it didn't work. And I wanted to do things a little bit differently. And maybe that's just the entrepreneur in me wanting to do things a little bit different. But I really, I love that you did that because that's, I love to see that with people who say, you know, I, I know what I want to get to, or I know what the outcome is that I'm kind of looking for. You know, I don't have to take the same path as everybody else to get there. Totally. Well, I did take the same path. So. <laughs> well, you're so <laughs> yeah, lame, so, right? So, so I'm the lame one of this group here. But, okay, you're in college. Now, you go to MIT, which is no small feat for anyone. I would imagine, though, if you spend a half of your days in high school learning math and science, you were almost being primed for MIT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that I mean, so I went to – it's this – incredible high school called Campsie, Kalamazoo Area Math and Science Center, which was really funded by a local pharmaceutical company at the time called Upjohn, which has since been acquired, I think, a number of times. But they actually gave a huge donation to create this high school where from within, I think, 75 miles, um, you basically could come. And if you qualified, if you got in, you could spend half your day there, and then you'd spend half your day at uh, at your normal high school. And it was it was a fascinating sort of experiment. And the experiment's gone on for you know now whatever twenty five years plus, but they've done an amazing job. And that school has graduated kids that have gone everywhere and have done so well. So it's like that to me is like a model of high school education. It's a different topic, but. They, they did an amazing job. And, I mean, obviously, given your track record, it sounds like you're an example of that. So, you, so you're in MIT. Obviously, it's a rigorous program. But then you find out early on you want to run a company. Talk, can you take us through your first venture and how that even came about in the first place, especially being so young? Yeah, so I, I went to school at a fortunate time where at my senior year, the, the web was first introduced. So um, many people probably listening to this podcast wouldn't know that time because it was so <laughs> long ago. But, um, you know, back then there was the internet, which we had been on for quite a while. And being at MIT, you have email and you understand kind of how to do different things on the internet because they teach you that pretty quickly. Um, but then the web emerged and we jumped on it right away. So a bunch of friends and I uh, figured out, hey, this thing exists. And I think our founding team probably had one of the first maybe 50 websites, 100 websites. So it was super early. And we just sort of, we were asking basic questions of like, can we actually do commerce on the web, which is obviously a crazy question now. Um, But those are the fundamental questions that we were trying to ask you know, what can we build on top of this incredible platform called the web or the internet? And how do we do it? So we basically started out as a consulting company. And we actually showed ESPN the web for the first time, which was pretty neat. Um, And we started trying to say, how do we how do we build a business around this? And very quickly, we switched from doing some consulting into trying to build some products. Um, The web was moving incredibly fast at the time. I mean, months then were probably like years of progress. Um, so it was pretty fast. So we switched 
into building products and and that's how we kind of got our start i feel like that should be on like your linkedin bio i had one of the first 50 websites ever <laughs> and introduced espn <laughs> yeah. to the interwebs yeah, i made ESPN it was very it was very fun introducing them to the to the web um, <laughs> it was it was a neat experience okay so i think that but that's a really good example right so like this is the introduction of public facing internet more or less and I don't think you can really get a better example of almost by environment and circumstance being forced to go slow because of how technology was at the time. So, you know, ultimately this company, NetGenesis, Genes- Net ends up getting, uh, going public and then getting acquired. But leading up to that point of, of going public, how are you almost like being forced to go slow because of this, because of just the technology at the time, but, but, but I also sounds like time. things were moving really yeah. quickly and evolving. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a good example where I'd say there's some things that we did where we did go slow and you were forced to, because for instance, you know, today you can go build a product very, very fast. Um, all the tools and technology and infrastructure is available to you. So to be able to quickly build a product today, you, you really just, need your laptop and you can spin up servers at AWS. You can download open source um, development environments. You can get going very quickly. Well, that's not really the way it was when we started. You had to go buy really expensive servers. You had to go buy tools. You had to buy everything. And so you were almost forced because of capital to go slow. You couldn't hire that many people because there weren't that many people who actually had the experience. So in that respect, we were forced to go really slow. Um, but in other aspects we had to go fast. So we had to raise a fair amount of money because it was sort of like the land rush of that time. And so you had to scale up very quickly. You had to hire people in other parts of the organization quickly. And part of it is we didn't do a good job of building sort of fundamental pieces of the business model, uh, maybe pricing model, uh, messaging, value proposition, all those things that, you know, you really want to hone. We, we were forced to do it very, very fast. And I think in a lot of ways, some of it was done okay. Some of it probably wasn't done very well. And ultimately, you, you end up with problems when you don't have those things nailed down. And obviously, at that time, there were many, many companies who were going too fast, going public too early, and ended up, you know, with lots of trouble later on, which, you know, we hit too. I like that you brought that part up that, you know, it's, you were kind of on the fly figuring out your messaging, your communication strategy, your value proposition, things like that. Because, you know, in, in my line of work where I, you know, I support startups in essentially developing like their brand foundation as they try to raise money as, as well as get customers. One of the reasons, you know, one of the big reasons why my business even exists is because founders and founding teams almost like think they can gloss over that stuff. And, and there's always going to be a, oh yeah, when things settle down, we can get to that. We just need to focus on you know product right now or the software right now. But the reality is you end up a lot of times, if you do that, building something and then having no idea really what you've just built and who it's for and how to talk about it. I think it's one of the most important things that startups can focus on. It, and it gets glossed over all the time, messaging. It's just messaging, it's just positioning. Um, you know, it's marketing, right? It's, it's sort of spin or whatever. And I just think that's, it's wrong. It's, it's, it's the core 
of how you're going to communicate your business to your potential customers. And if you can't, you know, I like to say that you need to activate them. You need to get their mind to light up when the words you choose or the graphics that you show or the images or pictures or the demo or whatever it is that you're kind of conveying, you have to figure out how you've tapped into a part of their brain that lights up. So you're communicating your message in a way that resonates with them. So whether that's in the terms that they think of, it's a picture that they can sort of understand because it it makes sense to them, whatever that is, it's got to really make sense to them. And that is so hard to do. I think most companies fail at it. And that's probably why a lot of them actually fails because they've sort of got a mismatch of what they're trying to convey to how that customer wants to receive that information or understand or accept that information. So I'm curious because obviously based on your um, academic history, going to this math and science school and then studying engineering, you obviously have like a very technical background, but it also sounds like you've been in business a long time. So you're pretty familiar with the sort of like marketing and branding side. Is that something that you learned as you went like was that pretty difficult at the beginning to to sort of get a grip on it's so hard yeah I mean I learned along the way we failed at it many many times and then when you see it succeed in different ways you you grasp on that and you really learn from it too Mm -hmm. so it's yeah it's one of the most important things that companies can focus on I can't stress it enough get your messaging right like figure out how your positioning and messaging really activates in the mind of that that prospect or that customer. And it is there's lots of people that do it. Um, most people do it badly. Um, that's why Raj, you exist to help people <laughs> do that. But um, it's you know get help from other folks. Talk to lots of customers. Talk to lots of prospects. Just keep iterating on it. But this is like the prime example to me of you know take your time, get it right because if it's right your business will just go. Um, it, it, the end user activates, they wanna know more, they wanna contact you, they wanna buy, um, because you have it right. You, you have connected with them in a way that they understand and they know why they need your help, and, and it works. I wanna also touch on, before we get into, before you start going into the, your, the next you know, years of your career and your life here, in this time of net genesis, which, if I have it correctly, was like mid '90s, right? Yep. This and, yep. and as you mentioned, like one of the like one of the first websites ever, which is still blowing my mind. But you said you had to go out and raise money for this. How like how was that? Can you, how do you compare the process then to now? Considering there was not an angel list, there was not a tech crunch or a crunch base or anything like that. The word startup wasn't really a thing at that point. So how did you, how, what, what, was the, what was the process like then? It was really, really hard. So, you know, we think of raising money now, um, and there's a lot of challenges today for, for founders to raise money. But go back 25 years, 24 years, whatever it is, and think about a young kid, 20 years old, 21 year old, kid raising money with venture capitalists in Boston. So it was totally unheard of. And um, we were able to do it, but it was super hard um, and just a very, very different experience. So 
and the, the balance of power at that time in terms of founders versus venture capitalists was very, very different. Um, today, I think it's at least equal, if not founders have tremendous um, leverage and power because there's so many venture firms out there. And if you have a great concept, a great business, you have a lot of options. Um, and even if you don't, you still have a lot of options to go raise money to get to that next level. So at that time, it's totally different. There's only very few angels. We were fortunate enough to find two amazing angels who sort of kicked off our pro process. And then uh, we did some kind of uh, interesting things where we had two software companies invest in around these two companies were actually competitors of each other. Um, and they decided they were very interested in what we we're doing. And so we were able to raise some money from them. And then we raised venture money. So just a completely different experience. But I think now founders have a lot of leverage. And obviously, if you do an amazing job, kind of prepping your materials, making sure that you understand what venture investors or angels or whoever your target is, is looking for, I think you can, there's plenty of money out there for, for good businesses and good people. Now, so one more question on this and then we'll, we'll move on. Yeah, sure. I, and I don't mean to like date you with this or, or make <laughs> you sound okay. old because you're not, but was there like, was PowerPoint out and did you use a PowerPoint or was it like actual like cardboard physical slides or neither? <laughs> I, I think PowerPoint may have been out at that time. I can't even remember. Um, but you did use slides. Um, and I can't even remember how we created them. Um, but it was, it was pretty much the same thing. Um, I'd say it was the experience was much more formal than it is today. So, you know, you think about when you'd show up to meet with them today, you know, business casual, you can be wearing jeans, um, you know, you got the hoodie thing going on, which everybody talks about. Um, back then it was, you were wearing a suit when you went and pitched investors. And, and the, that was sort of an indicator of how formal the process was. It was a, a process that took time. They did a tremendous amount of homework and research and due diligence, which they still do today, but it's done at a much more rapid pace because obviously you can go test products online. You can, um, you can talk and communicate uh, with people very, very quickly because you have email versus, you know, you got to get a hold of everybody via phone or something like that. Um, so it's, yeah, it was a fascinating experience. They're very, very different. All right. Your next two companies then are Service Metrics, Interliant. Uh, yeah, Service Metrics and Interliant. That takes you, if I have my information correct, that takes you into basically the early 2000s, the dot com bubble, all that. Yeah. And it seems like you stay within the, you know, essentially the website space or industry, which sounds weird now because everything is a website, right? But at that time, not <laughs> yep. necessarily the case. So yeah. what do you learn from service metrics and interliant? And what do you do differently as compared to NetGenesis? And like kind of each time through here, like what, do you, what are you doing that you feel like, okay, this time we're, we're doing it a little bit better and we're, we're taking it a little bit slower? Yeah, so I think the, the couple of things, Service Metrics, I'd say, was a very fast company, um, incredibly fortunate. Um, we had a concept, we built, we, we had a very narrow product, which was great. It was actually the right thing to do. 
Um, and that was one of the learning experiences from NetGenesis too, is to build one product, go deeper into that product, and and do a great job with that product. And the company was Service Metrics was only around for about eighteen months uh, before it was acquired. So, and the other piece of learning was to have the right uh, investors. And so we had we had a great team of investors there, people that we really respected that were incredibly helpful and just on the same page with us. So that one was, I would say, a lot of luck. Um, it was a product of the time, too, which is basically late 98, 99. Um, things were kind of going crazy. And so there was a company who really liked what we were doing, and they bought it. And um, it ended up being an incredible outcome for, for everybody involved. And then the other company, Interliant, was a a little bit different. It was um, that was a company that really had to go fast because of the design of what we had. So basically, we were trying to acquire a bunch of web hosting companies, which you know kind of sounds crazy right now. But basically, think of it as people hosting sites all across the web, and that used to be a mom and pop business where you had hundreds or maybe even thousands of these companies around the world, and every one of them was a couple million dollars, um, and so. We raised a ton of money, uh, very very fast, um, with some great co-founders. So people that I um, work with uh, today, Brad Feld, who I've worked with for almost 25 years now, um, he and I co-founded the company with a couple other folks, and that that was an incredible experience. But that was one where we had to go fast, and we so we acquired 36 companies in like three years, and then where you had to figure out how to put them together. That was where you went slow, where you tried to figure out how do you integrate all these companies and do it in the right way. But that's an incredible challenge, too, because you have 2,000 people that you've got to integrate into kind of one organization, which is very, very hard, if not impossible, to do. So as I'm hearing that, what what comes to mind is essentially two different skill sets. There is the founder skill set. And then there's the CEO skill set. And a lot of people are both founder and CEO, but there's a point where sometimes you can't be both roles because CEO takes a different set, uh, a different uh, set of personality or different personality and different leadership traits, et cetera, right? It looks like you ended up not going CEO route for everything, right? You were co-founder, but not necessarily CEO. So... Can you talk about the sort of like division of labor and how that changed as your company as as your company grows? Yeah, so I think in general I've tried to be CEO of one thing at a time. It's hard to be CEO <laughs> of multiple things, um, but I've had enough ideas where I wanted to do other things. So, for example, Service Metrics, I wasn't the CEO, um, and a friend of mine became the CEO, and a, another friend became the CTO. And I was on the board, um, and I really supported that company with helping with different ideas and advice and feedback and concepts and just more as a board member and co-founder, but not as a day-to-day active member of the team. With Interliant, um, because of the style of the company and because of how much money we were going to raise, um, I, I didn't become CEO. Um, I had one of our co-founders, Steve, become CEO, and then um, the company grew very, very fast, and we brought in um, another CEO, and ultimately, 
I think what I've learned from that experience is, you know, the professional CEOs often aren't the best CEOs for your company long term, even if you grow rapidly. And I think you see that today in a lot of what's happened. So a lot of companies today, venture capitalists are realizing that professional CEOs aren't necessarily always the right answer. Um, the founders sometimes can grow into that role. Um, and even if the company grows incredibly fast, there are some rare founders who who can grow into being CEOs and, and keeping that vision as well as figuring out how to operate the business. So that I think that was a piece of the learning from, from Interliant. I think what's so interesting about this whole thing and just sort of this idea of you know, everyone wants things to happen so quickly because they see that, you know, happening for other people or they think that's what's happening for other people. And then, you know, you so often hear, um, you know, that someone is a supposed overnight success, success, you know, 10 years in the making. And it's interesting because obviously you have had a super successful career and someone might see you as like pretty young to have written a book. But then as you sort of peel back the layers, like you've been working for a really long time and like doing a, a lot of different things, you know, even if you just sort of take this whole thing from like a career perspective, I think there's so many people who just want to hurry up and like have that one successful thing that, you know, launches them into fame or money or, you know, or whatever that, um, success is for them without realizing that like, it's a, it's a long process to get there. And, you know, that's, that's sort of how we started the book. Mm -hmm. We basically talk about like, are you really doing this for the right reasons? Mm -hmm. And founding, being, being an owner of a business or a founder of a business is incredibly painful. It's, it's a tremendous amount of work. You sacrifice so many different things in your life and you have to be prepared for that. And there's very few rare cases where you didn't have to sacrifice too much and you got a big outcome. Yeah. Um, we've experienced that. It's happened, but it's very rare. And to count on that is, I think, a very much a wrong reason to go into building your own company. It's going to take a long time. And even then, the chances of you being successful are really low. So it, it has to be a labor of love. You have to really be passionate about it. it you have to do it for other reasons because if you're doing it for the money or the fame or you know, some other extrinsic reason, the chances of it kind of panning out for you are, are really low. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I'm glad, we, I'm glad you brought that point up, Victoria, because What's baked into this is, you know, I, I don't think you're going to find any founder who outright says, yes, I'm doing this for fame and for fortune, right? No one's really going to outright say that or even yeah, say it to themselves. But <laughs> the almost like the, the better question or the, the different angle to look at it is to ask, like, are you doing this to feed your ego or are you doing this because yep. you truly want to help, you know, you actually care about this problem, you want to solve it, etc. Well, is it because you want to get to that end goal or is it because you want to go through the process of getting to that, to that yeah, end goal? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, I think it's what do people get out of it? Um, I mean, that goes to your question of like, maybe it's okay to feed your ego if that's done in a way that is sustainable or, mm -hmm. or works. Um, you know, maybe your ego is about, you know, you really want to work hard and you want to, have accomplishment for yourself and that gives you self-worth and value and um, that makes you feel great um, okay that could be one if you know some people feed it to 
you know, they can tell their friends that they're CEO of a company. Like, I'm not sure that's a great reason, but you know, <laughs> if, if that if that's what gets you out of the um, get gets you going to do it, then maybe maybe that's the thing. But I, that's a core part of what we what we focused on in the book is you got to ask those really hard questions and look, no one can, no one can tell you what's inside of you. You have to decide what, what it is inside of you that's driving you. And it, and you have to decide also if those reasons are going to be sustainable over 10, 12, 15 years for most people, they aren't. So that's why we say most people shouldn't be founders. And I think too, one of the, one of the things you mentioned there was, there's responsibility involved. You have to, you know, you, you're signing up for a long-term contract in a lot of cases. That's where it is important to ask these questions up front about like, are you doing these, are you doing this for the right reason? Are you building the right type of business? You know, like I have had a good amount of people ask me like, Hey, how come I haven't started, you know, done a traditional startup? You know, why haven't I tried to go that route before? And my answer is always, you know, like it may happen in the future, but I know right now, and everything to this point and right now, I do not personally want the responsibility of taking in someone else's money and having and having to live up to that because my personality is such where, you know, I, I like that I can also teach yoga a few times a week. I like that I can also make music. And I like that I've sort of structured this balance in my life where I can do all these things and that be okay. And it doesn't really hurt anyone else but me if I decide to focus in one area versus another for a short period of time. And to me, that's why, like, you know what? I am not the type of person to, at least right now, go out and hire a bunch of employees and, and then be responsible for their lives as well. Yeah, it's a great example of go slow to go fast. If you can actually spend some time really reflecting on what's important to you and what's the right situation for you, then the chances of you putting yourself in that situation are going to be much greater. And, and you've done that and that's great. And you don't have to have a company in order to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And so I think that's a great example of take your time. You don't have to go run out and start a company. It's not, it's not for everybody. Let's fast forward then. So taking us through the 2000s, you've got, it's, it's so funny that like we're fast forwarding through, like you got like four more companies that you end up starting or co-founding and then uh, either selling off or, or, or otherwise. But um, to, today you're the CEO and co-founder of Jump Cloud. Now, what do you feel led you, like more than anything else, what do you feel is like the prevailing personality trait or business strategy you implemented that got you to this point to where you've been doing this now five years running and I'm, you know, given your track record, potentially acquisition or going public at some point. Yeah. You know, this is one where it's, I feel like this has been a culmination of a lot of the different things that I've done and that we have as a team and investors, cause I've worked with Brad uh, so many different times and he's an investor and a big investor in this, this company. And it's just, I think, the culmination of all that experience to say, how do we do things just a little bit differently? And how do we figure out what the problem is that we're trying to solve? And let's throw out all the conventional wisdom of how those problems get solved. And let's just really go solve that problem. But let's do it in a way 
that works for us and works for the business. And that has been sort of a prevailing theme throughout the company. And so, so many of the things that we do are really just very, very different from how other software companies build their businesses. And for whatever reason, it's sort of worked for us. Um, I'm not sure it would work for everybody, but we happen to we happen to sort of be in a space where we can take, I think, unconventional approaches and make them pay off. And that's been a really sort of enjoyable experience. It goes back to a little bit tying it back to, you know, when I went to high school, I thought about high school a little bit differently. Well, now when we look at problems in marketing and sales and product, whatever it is, we we try and really look at them differently. Like what's the core of the problem we're trying to solve? And what are all the options available to us? Not just the ones that we already know how to do or that everybody tells us that that's the way it should be solved. And that's been a lot of fun for us to look at the problems differently. I like that idea of looking at it differently. How do you, how do you think then that like juxtaposes against this concept of, you know, people having like the, the, this proven method, this proven tactic, um, you know, you, you know, let's say you see, you see another company, you see an article about how they did this thing and got these results. So how do you juxtapose the comparison to what you've seen other people do successfully and other companies do successfully to your own sort of desire and, and belief to take the unconventional approach? I think if you look hard enough, you can find just about every path that's been successful, right? I mean, I'm sure there's some outlier ways of doing things that just aren't going to work, right? But in general, you take a look at at an approach. Let's say you have a new sales approach. I think you can, if you look hard enough, you can find examples of people that have been successful at it. Maybe it's not mainstream. Maybe it's not the norm. Maybe it's not what the VCs will tell you. But I think if you dig hard enough, you can find examples of people who have done things that are similar to what you're thinking about doing. And maybe you put your own twist on it. And, and that ends up working a little bit better. So I think it's sort of having the courage to, to say, what's the problem I'm trying to solve and what's the best way for us to solve it here? And not really worrying about whether other people have done it, not done it, what they say, what they don't say. It's really just about like, how do you learn how to solve that problem the best way possible for you? And if there's other models that you can leverage to gain some learning and experience from it, all the better. And if you can't, then you basically just figure it out yourself and, and say, can I make this work? Just jumped to in my head, Raj, when you asked the question, um, or just sort of the idea of like methods that you discover that work, but then also realizing that for every situation, every company, every product, there's always going to be some nuance or some uh, something that's different that makes it so that that process doesn't work. And it just reminded me, I... Um, just for reference, I worked at Pepsi for five years and I worked in supply chain and I worked on our coconut water brands, which were like a very new emerging business and um, helped set up the whole supply chain process when the coconut water brand was acquired by Pepsi. And it was like such a difficult task because Pepsi has produced um other beverages so many times in the past through like sort of one standard process. And then this one was going to be so different and so outside the box of what they really could like comprehend. Um, and it was like, just a very interesting thing to like try to take this really established process that had worked time and time and time again for them 
and have to like just tweak every single part of it because the whole the whole supply chain really had to be redone because the product was totally different. So just sort of an interesting, but I mean, of course, the process we came up with, I'm sure has been done by other other companies before. It was just very new to PepsiCo specifically. So just kind of that idea that like someone else has probably done something similar and you might use tidbits of what you've done before, but ultimately at the end of the day, I think each business and each product or each service is going to have its own nuances that make it different. I think that's one of the most dangerous items that VCs can impart on their portfolio companies. Just that pattern matching approach Mm -hmm. of this is the exact way that somebody else did it, so that's the way you should do it. And we hear that all the time from people that we talk to. And I think it's one of the most dangerous parts of the VC founder relationship. I think as well, it's it's also helpful to look at what are the, you know, when you talk about this idea of being unconventional, a lot of times unconventional does not cost money or cost very little money, which can be a great thing for a company. I wrote an article recently about this with Spotify and over a roughly, I, I believe it was like a 16 month period, they gained 32 million paid subscribers and dropped their churn down to 2.2%. And granted, there were a lot of things that went on to help this happen. But the point that I highlighted amidst this massive growth period was, if you recall about, so in the year from, basically prior to early 2017, if you sent someone a, uh, a link through text message, it was like a hundred character URL with no preview. You know, now yeah. it's like yeah, a yeah, thumbnail yeah, preview, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was like a terrible sharing experience <laughs> yeah. via text message. And a lot of times people, like you just wouldn't click on things because you didn't know what was being sent. Yeah. And people are just lazy, right? Yeah. And in that midst of terrible sharing, Spotify just edited the, the, the share language slightly so that it said, here's a song for you, dot, 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 Africa by Toto, and then it gave you the long URL train, uh, chain. And what, like, the first time I remember getting a message like that, I actually thought my friend had like handpicked and sent out. me, and was like, hey, you should listen to this. <laughs> yeah. you know. And I still remember the song. It was a song by an artist called Toussaint Morrison. It was called Baby on Bad Weather. And then I ended up diving into that artist's portfolio. And in that time period, I also converted to paid subscriber because <laughs> I was using the app so much, right? And just a little thing like that, it doesn't cost them anything to edit that share code to just have it have a little bit extra where every other company that has that share feature is just sending out the URL chain. They are adding that one thing that just uh, that makes it personalized and makes it more than just computer speaking to human, but human speaking to human. The best companies look at every single thing. And they try and say, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And like, how do we make this experience the best it can be? How can we improve? That's a great example. It's an incredible example. Just that little one thing, which I'm sure there were a hundred little things that they tried like that um, all over the place that ended up making a difference. But this one probably was a major, major difference for them. I want to spend a couple minutes talking about the book you just released. So it's called The Startup Playbook. You're the co-author along with Will Herman. I've been reading through it over the last week. I've, been, I've just been really into it. Um, I love how you've, 
I love how you've broken it down. Like things that I think a lot of people make assumptions about, you've broken down and just explained very rudimentary concepts, even down to like, here's what every different type of capital funding is and here's what each definition is. Because I'll tell you, a lot of people, again, just assume that this is known knowledge by everyone and that, but I, but I feel like there's a lot of people who are out there who are then like going back to their phones and Googling, okay, wait, what, what does this mean? Like when they say cap table and they say it like in this context versus another context. So I really like how you've broken down the concepts so granular. Can you talk through quickly, just like how, how did you decide how to structure this book given, you know, such a history of learning so many things and then parse it down, you parse it down into a pretty condensed knowledge base that I think, it, you know, it really is a playbook for startups as the, as the yeah, title says. Well, yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, we basically looked at it as we talked to so many first time founders. And so the thought process on how to structure the book and how to sort of have it evolve, if you will, um, over the course of the, the book itself was, um, it was driven by kind of how we thought people would go build their business and the conversations that we've had with people in our own experiences. So many times we sort of skip right into the, we got to go raise money or we've got to go build the product, um, or we've got to do some, something or else, um, within there. What we wanted to do is we wanted to start from the basics and say, are you sure you need to be a founder? Do you want to be a founder? Maybe you just want to be part of the startup team. So start there. Let's not have any assumptions that are sort of unstated, if you will. And then move on from there. Okay, you've decided to start a company and that really is your passion. Great. Are you doing it for the right reason? Yep, you're doing it for the right reasons. Okay, well now how do we get started? And how do you find an idea? How do you make sure that that idea has a solid foundation to build a whole business around. And then you can move to things like, well, let's see how we split up the, the equity amongst all the co-founders. And then how do we raise money? And how do we build the product and go to market? I mean, all those things happen. We sort of say this, they, they don't always happen sequentially, but there is sort of an order of operations where it happens. And so we wanted to make sure that the things that most people skip over we actually were making explicit. So that was sort of the thought process. And, and I also like, too, the way that you've, you've gone about writing it is it, it's, not a here's, it's not a here's what you need to do, here's how to do this. It's much more of a you need to be thinking about this. You need to make sure you don't forget about that. So it's really it's about sort of making sure you have the right, as a founder, you have the right mindset every step of the journey. Yeah, it was, it was more about, like I think, Victoria, you said this, where every business is a little bit different and it has different approaches, different models, and we wanted to recognize that. There's no one right way to build a company. There's many different ways, and any single way could potentially be successful, but here's some of the things that you need to think about with whatever method you choose, and I think that's that it's a little bit harder to write a book that way because it'd be much easier to say, just go do this. Um, but that's not the way it works. And so we wanted to make sure that we gave people the thought process behind maybe a particular area and then some options around here might be some ways to, to do it, or here might be some things to go look at. Before we wrap up, let's, can you let our listeners know where they can find the book, where they can find you and get in touch with you? 
Yeah, so you can um, get the book on Amazon. So just search for the Startup Playbook. And uh, you can reach Will or I at um, startup-playbook.com. So you can just send us a note through that. Um, first name at uh, startup-playbook.com works. Um, or you can just go to the site and, and fill out the form and, and we'll get back in touch with you. Awesome. Okay, so to close out then, we'll go one by one and we'll give our answer to today's question based on what we've discussed. We'll start with Victoria and Raj, we'll close with you. So Victoria, the topic today was how do you go slow to grow fast? What's your answer? Um, well, I think this is something that like can be applied to so many things, not just people with startups. Um, for me, this is sort of a concept that I'm constantly trying to work on in my own life. Like I'm such, I'm totally the kind of person that just likes to check off the boxes and scratch things off my list and okay, done with that, done with this, done with that. And instead, I really, really, really want to be better about focusing on the process of getting, of accomplishing something as opposed to just accomplishing it. Uh, I mean, in some cases, it's about efficiency and just like doing the dishes and making the bed and like <laughs> just checking life things off um, and not like loving every moment of washing your dishes. But um, but anyways, I just I, to me, this whole concept is like so applicable to everything in life that um, that nothing or rarely. I mean, some things do happen fast and that's fine. But I think patience is a virtue and it's um, and it's something to be um, to be in in every part of your life. My answer for how do you go slow to grow fast, it's, it's a couple things. One, uh, we talked about it early on, but that idea of look at some of these foundational elements and don't think you can gloss over them and just get to them later. You know, like the specific example we talked about was, for instance, the messaging, the communication aspect of it. Obviously, that's the domain I've chosen to play in, so I'm, I'm biased towards that. But that's why I'm biased towards it, because it is so important. Um, so I think a lot of founders think things will all of a sudden because they'll be, they'll have some room to breathe once X happens and then they can focus on that thing. So it's important to know that things generally only get like harder and more intense as it goes on. So you don't necessarily have more room to breathe later and it may become even harder if you don't build the foundations early on. The other aspect too, just very tactically for startup founders is, you know, Raj, as you were talking about, um, the idea of raising money and everything, you have to know when is the right time for your company to take in money because a lot of people think like first thing you need to do out the door is get some money into this company. You know, obviously there are some cases where you may, you can't build the thing or whatever, like you need clinical trials, so you need outside money. But in other cases, you have a much, you can make a much better case for yourself and it strategically makes more sense as a company if you wait a little bit, like one company I'm working with right now, they did like it started with a pivot table in Excel that this guy created and he started selling it as consulting services and he made like 20 grand in like two weeks selling these pivot tables. And he's like, wait, I think I could build some software out of this and make it better. Ends up doing $550,000 in revenue uh, the following year once he's built out the base version of the software improves on the software, does 1.2 million the next year. And now, finally this year, with software that's really top-notch, he's finally going out to raise money. And the case is just so strong for him and his company because of how methodical he was about it and because he's waited for the right time. 
It's a great example. I think it's, Victoria, you said it's patience. Um, I also think it's a little bit, Raj, what you said is um, if you can keep the long-term goals in mind, it gets much easier to make the short-term sacrifices. So your example of a person who's grown their business over the course of three years or two years, whatever it is, um, into something that's you know a viable, stable company because they took the time to do that is an awesome example of now that now is the right time for them to go do that. They're going to have more success. But the reason they got there is because they were patient and because they kept the long-term goals in mind. And so that's my answer is patience and keeping the long-term in mind. Raj Bhargava, thank you for, so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people get to discover their inner awesome. While you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform it is you listen, whether that is iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the various other podcasting platforms in which you can find the show. For full show notes, references, and resources from this episode, you can grab it all at discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Also, check out our 100-plus episode archive while you're there. whole lot of awesome for you to dig into. That'll do it for this one. Thank you again to our guests for joining. For Victoria Cohen, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today.